Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to the sole exploration of serial killers, who they were, what they did, why, and how. I am your host, Thomas Weiborg Thune, and tonight's subject is one of the top three most infamous serial killers of all time, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer was born in Milwaukee on May 21st, 1960, to Lionel and Joyce Dahmer. He was a child who was wanted and adored in spite of the difficulties of Joy's pregnancy. He was a normal, healthy child whose birth was the occasion of great joy. As a taunt, he was a happy, bubbly youngster who loved stuffed bunnies, wooden blocks and so on. He also had a pet dog named Frisky, his much-beloved childhood pet. Despite a greater number than usual of ear and throat infections, Jeff developed into a happy little boy. His father recalled they that they released back into the wild a bird that the three of them had nursed back to health from an injury. I cradled the bird in my cupped hand, lifted it into the air, then opened my hand and let it go. All of us felt a wonderful delight. Jeff's eyes were wide and gleaming. It may have been the single happiest moment of his life, the father recalled. The family had moved to Iowa where Lionel was working on his PhD at Iowa State University. When Jeff was four, his father swept out from under their house the remains of some small animal that had been killed by civets. As his father gathered the tiny animal bones, Jeff seemed oddly thrilled by the sound they made. His small hands dug deep into the pile of bones. I can no longer view it simply as a childish episode, a passing fascination, the father recalled, this same sense of something dark and shadowy, of a malicious force growing in my son, now colors almost every memory. At the age of six, he was found to be suffering from a double hernia and needed surgery to correct the problem. 
He never seemed to recover his ebullience and buoyancy. He seemed smaller somehow, more vulnerable. He grew more inward, sitting quietly for long periods, hardly stirring, his face oddly motionless. In 1966, Lionel had completed his graduate work in Iowa and got a job as a research chemist in Akron, Ohio. Joyce was pregnant with their second son, David, by that time, and Jeffrey was in first grade. A strange fear had begun to creep into his personality, a dread of others that was combined with a general lack of self-confidence. He was developing a reluctance to change, a need to feel the assurance of familiar places. The prospect of going to school frightened him. The little boy, who'd once seemed so happy and self-assured, had been replaced by a different person, now deeply shy, distant, nearly uncommunicative. Lionel suspected that the move from Iowa to Ohio was the causative factor and Jeff's behavior was a normal reaction to being uprooted from familiar settings and placed into entirely new ones. Lionel too had suffered from shyness, introversion and insecurity as a child and had learned to overcome these problems. He figured his son would learn to overcome them too. What he didn't realize was that Jeff's boyhood condition was far graver than his and that, according to the father, Jeff had begun to suffer from near isolation. In April of 1967, they bought a new house. Jeff seemed to adjust better to this move and developed a close friendship with a boy named Lee. He was also very fond of one of his teachers and took her a bowl of tadpoles he had caught. Later, Jeff found out that the teacher had given the tadpole to his friend Lee. Jeff thus sneaked into Lee's garage and killed all the tadpoles with motor oil. Things did not get better with time. His posture and the general way in which he carried himself changed radically between his 10th and 15th years. The loose-limbed boy disappeared and was replaced by a strangely rigid and inflexible figure. He looked tense, his body very straight. He grew increasingly shy during this time and when approached by other people he would become very tense. More and more he remained at home, alone in his room or staring at television. His face was often blank and he gave the more or less permanent impression of someone who could do nothing but mope around, purposeless and disengaged. He had one friend who drifted apart from him at age 15. Lionel found out at Jeff's trial that during this period Jeff would ride around with plastic garbage bags and collect the remains of animals for his own private cemetery. He would strip the flesh from the bodies of these putrescent roadkills and even mount a dog's head on a stake. There has been the suggestion that Jeff tortured animals, but that is unlikely. He enjoyed the dog and cat as pets in his childhood and kept pet fish as an adult. His fascination was with dead creatures, not the killing itself. Jeff grew more passive and isolated, his conversation narrowing to the practice of answering questions with barely audible one-word responses. He was drifting into a nightmare world of unimaginable fantasies. In coming years, those fantasies would begin to overwhelm him. The dead in their stillness would become the primary objects of his growing sexual desire. His inability to speak about such strange and unsettling notions would sever his connections to the world outside himself. While other boys pursued careers, education, the creation of homes and families, Jeff was completely unmotivated. 
he must have come to view himself as utterly outside the human community, outside all that was normal and acceptable, outside all that could be admitted to another human being. One would expect that a person harboring the fantasies of death and dismemberment that swirled around in Jeffrey Dahmer's head as a teenager would show some outer signs of mental illness. But Jeff just became more isolated and uncommunicative. Far from rebelling, he never argued with his parents, because nothing seemed to matter to him. In high school, Jeff had average grades and participated in a few activities. He played tennis and worked on the school newspaper. However, his classmates considered him a loner and an alcoholic who brought liquor into the classroom. He actually had a prom date, whom he later invited to his parents' house for a seance. His classmates remember a stunt he pulled when he got himself included in the yearbook photo of the members of the National Honor Society. The yearbook staff caught a prank in time and blacked out Jeff's picture. As Jeff became more passive, the passions between Lionel and Joyce increased. It culminated in divorce when Jeff was almost 18 and a custody battle began over David, Jeffrey's younger brother. Some months later, Jeffrey's father Lionel remarried. Whatever Lionel missed about Jeff's alcoholism, his new wife Shari did not. Lionel and Shari convinced him to try the idea of college. In the fall of 1978, they drove him to Ohio State University, but he stayed drunk the whole semester and flunked out. By this time, his drinking problem was well understood, but he would not seek help for it. Lionel read him the rules. Either Jeff had to get a job or join the army. When Jeff refused to get a job and stayed drunk most of the time, his father drove him down to the recruitment office to join the armed forces in January of 1979. From that time until Jeff's final arrest in 1991, life was a roller coaster for Lionel and his wife. Jeff would appear to be doing well, and then it was clear that he wasn't. He seemed to enjoy the army, but then he was discharged early for habitual drunkenness. He then moved in with his grandmother and got a job, but then he was arrested for drunkenness and disorderly conduct. The offences got worse as his alcoholism and emotional problems intensified. And thus, while Jeffrey Dahmer had fantasies about killing men and having sex with their corpses as early as age 14, he didn't do anything about it until just after he graduated high school in June of 1978. He picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks when he was living with his parents in the upscale community of Bath, Ohio. They had sex and drank beer, but then Hicks wanted to leave. Dahmer couldn't stand the idea of Hicks leaving, so he struck him in the head with a barbell and killed him. He needed to get rid of the body, so he cut it up, packaged it up in plastic garbage bags, and buried the bags in the woods behind his house. That fall, he attended Ohio State University for a semester but flunked out. At the end of 1978, he left to join the army and was stationed in Germany. Apparently, he didn't kill anyone when he was in the army, which was corroborated by an exhaustive investigation by the German police. After a couple of years, the army discharged him for alcoholism, and he went to live in Florida before returning to Ohio. Once back home, he dug up Hicks' body, pounded the decomposing corpse with a sledgehammer, and scattered the remains in the woods. A few months after his arrest in October of 1981 for drunken and disorderly conduct, his father thought it best that Jeffrey go live with his grandmother in West Alice, Wisconsin. Things were calm for a few months until he dropped his trousers in the company of a group of people. He had apparently had a bit to drink. 
He kept things under control for another four years until he was again arrested in September of 1986 for masturbating in front of two young boys. He was put on probation for a year. He killed his second victim, Stephen Tomey, in a hotel room in September of 1987. The two of them had been drinking heavily in one of the popular gay bars. Dharma didn't know how he killed him, but when he awoke, Tomey was dead and blood was on his mouth. He bought a large suitcase and stuffed the body inside. After he took Tuomi's corpse to his grandmother's basement, he had sex with it, masturbated on it, dismembered it, and threw it in the garbage. Several months later, he selected his third victim, a 14-year-old Native American boy named Jamie Doxtator, who hung around outside the gay bars looking for relationships. Dharma's methods became established by that time, Normally he would meet and select his prey at gay bars and bathhouses. He would lure his victims by offering them money for posing for photographs, or simply to enjoy some beer and videos. Then he would drug them, strangle them, masturbate on the body or have sex with the corpse, dismember the body and dispose of it. Sometimes he would keep the skull or other body parts as souvenirs. His ritual for luring, murdering and disposing of his victims was usually the same. He invited the men to his apartment to watch sexually explicit videos or to pose for photos. He crushed up his prescribed sedatives and served them in a drink. Once drugged, Dharma strangled them with his bare hands or with a leather strap. He frequently had sex with the corpse and later masturbated on it. Before any cleanup began, Jeffrey reached for his Polaroid to capture the entire experience so that he can remember each and every murder. Then he cut open their torsos... He was fascinated by the color of the viscera and sexually aroused by the heat that the freshly killed body would give off. Finally, he would dismember the man, photographing each stage of the process for future viewing pleasure. He disposed of most of the bodies, experimenting with various chemicals and acids that would reduce the flesh to bone and the bone to a black, evil-smelling sludge, which could be poured down a drain or toilet. Some parts of the bodies he chose to keep as trophies, Frequently the genitals and head. The genitals were preserved in formaldehyde. The heads were boiled until the flesh came off. Once the skull was bare, he painted it with grey paint to look like plastic. He practiced this ritual on Richard Guerrero, a handsome young man of Mexican origin in late March of 1988. Jeffrey said he met him at a gay bar in Milwaukee, but the young man's family disputed that their son was anything but a heterosexual. By the summer of that year, Jeffrey had killed four men, while Dharma's grandmother was completely ignorant of the awful things that were happening in her basement. She was fully aware of the noise and drunkenness of Jeff and his male friends. Something had to be done. So on September 25th, 1988, Jeffrey moved into an apartment on North 24th Street in Milwaukee. The very next day, he got into serious trouble. He offered a 13-year-old Laotian boy $50 to pose for some pictures. He drugged the boy and fondled him, but did not get violent or have intercourse with him. By incredible coincidence, the boy's name was Cynthia Symphony, the older brother of the boy that Dahmer would kill in May of 1991. The boy's parents realized there was something wrong with their child and took him to the hospital, where it was confirmed that he had been drugged. The police picked up Dahmer at his job at a mixture of Ambrosia chocolate. He was arrested for a sexual exploitation of a child and second-degree sexual assault. On January 30, 1989, he pleaded guilty 
although he claimed that he thought the boy was much older than he was. While Dharma awaited sentencing and was living again at his grandmother's house, he met a black homosexual named Anthony Sears at a gay bar. Like the others, he offered the 24-year-old aspiring black model some money to pose for photos. When they reached Dharma's grandmother's house, Sears was drugged and strangled. Dharma had sex with his corpse and then dismembered it. Anne Schwartz describes what happened next. He kept the head and boiled it to remove the skin, later painting it grey so that in case of discovery, the skull would look like a plastic model used by medical students. Dahmer saved the trophy for two years until it was recovered from apartment 213 on July 23, 1991. Later, he explained that he masturbated in front of the skulls for gratification. On May 14, 1990... Dharma moved to 924th North 25th Street, apartment 213, and the killing began in earnest. During the following 15 months, Dharma went on a killing binge that cost 13 men their lives. The pace of Dharma's murders accelerated to a frenzy in May to July of 1991 when he was killing almost at a rate of one man a week. All but three were black. One was white, one was Laotian, and one was Hispanic. Most, but not all, were homosexual or bisexual. The youngest was Conorak, aged 14, and the oldest was 31. Many of the victims lived what police call high-risk lifestyles. Most of the men had arrest records, often for very serious crimes, like arson, sexual assault, rape, battery, and so on. After being evicted from his grandmother's house... Dahmer rented a place at the Oxford Apartments, apartment number 213, and just two weeks after moving into the now infamous apartment building, which has since been demolished, Jeffrey Dahmer met Ray Smith at Club 219. Ray was a newcomer to Milwaukee and seemed to run into the wrong guy at the wrong time. Jeff asked Ray back to his place to pose for some photos. Ray accepted this invitation and once Jeff offered him a drink, he was strangled then Jeffrey stripped the body and had sex with it. This was the first time that Jeffrey admitted to having sexual intercourse with a dead body, but definitely not the last. Once he'd had his fun with Ray, he dismembered the body and threw it out with the trash, all except the skull, which he kept and painted it to preserve it. On June 14th, 1990, Jeffrey met Eddie Smith. Eddie readily accepted Dharma's advances and went back to Jeff's apartment where they had oral sex. Afterwards, Jeff offered Eddie a drink, and soon after Eddie passed out, Jeff strangled him, dismembered the body, and then threw the remains out with the trash. On July 8, 1990, Jeff decided to vary his M.O., deciding not to bother drugging his victim. He had a 15-year-old Hispanic kid posing for photos when he picked up a mallet and tried to hit the boy in the head. The kid fought back and eventually escaped. The child went to the police, but when he begged police not to tell his foster parents that he was gay, the police decided to leave it alone. So, on September 3rd, 1990, Jeffrey picked up Ernest Miller, took him home, had intercourse with him, drugged him, then changed his game plan a little. He didn't strangle Miller, he cut his throat instead. He then sliced off the biceps... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was, and am, often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations, but never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. And put them in the freezer. Then, upon taking all the flesh from the bone, decided to keep the entire skeleton. It was around this time that Jeff's neighbor started to complain about the putrid smell coming from his apartment. Dahmer explained to the landlord that his fridge was broken and he would get it fixed as soon as possible. In September and October of 1990, Jeff met David Thomas, Dahmer and Thomas were drinking in Dahmer's apartment when Jeff gave him his special drink. Jeff didn't want to kill Thomas, but he was worried he might be upset when he woke up, having found out that Jeffrey had drugged him. So Jeff decided the best thing to do was to kill him anyway. This time he filled the whole dismemberment. He also took photos of David's severed head in various positions in the apartment. These photos were later viewed by Thomas's sister for identification purposes. On February 18, 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer met Curtis Strauter. Curtis wanted to be a model, so when Jeff mentioned in a paid pose for photos, he gladly agreed. He was strangled while giving Jeff oral sex. Jeff kept the skull and painted it to preserve it. He also decided to keep the hands and penis as well. On April 7, 1991, Jeff met Errol Lindsay, also known as Earl Lindsay, age 19 at the local bus stop. Errol was paid by Dahmer to come back to the apartment, where Jeffrey offered him a drink and he accepted, and soon Jeffrey was performing oral sex on his corpse. Jeff kept the skull. On May 24, 1991, Jeffrey met Tony Hughes at Club 219. Hughes was a deaf mute, so Dahmer wrote his offer on paper and handed it to Tony. $50 to pose for some photos and watch some videos. 
Well, Dahmer drugged and strangled Hughes, and then Jeff left the corpse laying around his bedroom for a few days before dismembering it. And so, on May 27th of 1991, a boy named Konorak was only 14 and he was running for his life. This was his only chance to escape from the horrible-smelling apartments where the creepy blonde guy had slipped him some kind of powerful drug. It seemed that luck was with him, that he started to come around just as the blonde man had left the apartment. It took all the strength he had to get up and get to the door. He was so disoriented and panicked that it made no difference that he was naked. This was his only chance to survive. He was working strictly on instinct. Just get out of there and run away. It was just before 2 a.m. and Sandra Smith called 911 to report the boy running around but naked. She didn't know who he was, but she knew he was injured and terrified. The paramedics got there first and put a blanket around the naked dazed boy. Two police officers arrived soon after and tried to understand what was going on with this young man of Asian descent. Sandra Smith, 18 years old, and her cousin, Nicole Childress, also 18, were standing near the boy when the Milwaukee City Police arrived. The tall, blonde man was also standing near the boy. The conversation became heated between the girls, the blonde man, and the police. The tall, blonde man told the police that Konorak was his 19-year-old lover who had been drinking too much. Konorak, who was drugged and incoherent, wasn't able to contradict the smooth-talking blonde man. Jeffrey Dahmer gave the police a picture ID. The two young women tried to intervene. They had seen the terrified boy trying to resist the blonde man before the police arrived. They were angry and upset. The police were ignoring them and listening to the white man instead. Just to be on the safe side, the two officers went with the boy and the tall blonde man to his apartment. The apartment smelled bad, but it was very neat. Conorak's clothing was folded and placed on the sofa. There were a couple of photographs of Conorak in black bikini briefs. And Conorak sat quietly on the sofa, unable to talk intelligently. It's not even clear that he understood the calm explanation the blonde man was giving the police. The blonde man was apologizing that his lover had caused a disturbance and promised it wouldn't happen again. The police believed Jeffrey Dahmer. They had no reason not to. He was well-spoken, intelligent, and very calm. The Asian was apparently drunk and incoherent. The officers, not wanting to get in the middle of a domestic argument between homosexual lovers, left the apartment with Conorak still sitting quietly on the sofa. In that neighborhood, the officers felt that there were more pressing things for them to do, and so Jeffrey added another skull to the collection, which he also painted to preserve. On June 30th, 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer traveled to Chicago for Gay Pride Day. While at a bus depot, he met Matt Turner, Another guy that wanted to be a model. Jeffrey Dahmer talked him into coming back to Milwaukee with him. And Jeffrey paid for a Greyhound bus ticket for them both, and they were soon off on the 90-mile ride. Once safely back in the confines of his apartment, Jeffrey Dahmer drugged and strangled Turner. He then cut off Turner's head, wrapped it in a plastic bag, and placed it in the freezer. He then placed the torso in a blue 57-gallon barrel. On July 4th, 1991, Dahmer decided to pay another visit to Chicago. While there, he met Jeremiah Weinberger, aged 23, at a local gay watering hole. 
Jeremiah even asked his roommates what he thought of Jeff. He seems all right, said the roommate. So Jeremiah decided to go back to Milwaukee with Jeffrey. Jeffrey again paid for a Greyhound bus ticket, and once they arrived back at Jeff's, they had mutual sex and Jeremiah spent the night. But when Jeremiah got sick of having sex with Jeff, he said he was going home. Jeff said fine, then offered him a farewell drink. The farewell drink was spiked with drugs, and Jeremiah passed out. Jeff then strangled him, and Jeremiah's head was later found in Jeff's freezer. On July 12th, 1991, Jeffrey met Oliver Lacey, age 23. They went back to Jeff's place, had a drink, fooled around, and then Jeff strangled him. Jeffrey sodomized the corpse, then sliced off the right bicep and ate it, thus creating the nickname the Milwaukee Cannibal. He placed Lacey's head in the fridge next to an open box of Arm & Hammer baking soda and his heart in the freezer to eat later. He also put other body parts in the freezer. He put the rest of the flesh into the trash and he kept the entire skeleton. It was at this time that Dharma was suspended from his job at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory. It seems that he spent a few too many days at home with his friends. This really upset Jeff, and on July 19th he was fired from the job, not making his mood any better. And on July 19th, 1991, Jeffrey met Joseph Bredehoft at a local bus stop. It was pouring down rain, and Joseph had a six-pack of beer on him, so he decided to go back to Jeff's to party a bit. Once there, they had oral sex, and then Dharma drugged and strangled him. Slept with the body for the next few days until the head became infested with maggots. Jeff cleaned it and put it in the freezer, along with the heads of Turner and Weinberger. He placed the torso in the 57-gallon barrel in the bedroom. Dahmer seemed to have very little control at this point. He seemed to care very little. He was becoming extremely sloppy, and it was only a matter of time before his world would completely collapse. And on July 22, 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer met Tracy Edwards, age 32. Jeffrey picked him up, got him back to his place, and uh, Jeffrey claims he remembers little of this evening, but Edwards will never forget it. According to Edwards, Jeff pulled out a knife and went from being Mr. Nice Guy to being a cold-hearted son of a bitch. Jeff managed to get a handcuff onto one of Edwards' hands, but Edwards fought back and somehow got away. Police officers Mueller and Routh were doing their nightly patrol down Kilburn Avenue, Milwaukee. When they reached the corner of 25th Street, they were flagged down by a black man with a handcuff dangling from his wrist, hysterically explaining to the officers that he had been drinking with a man who handcuffed him and tried to kill him. The officers tried to remove the handcuff from Edward's wrist, but their keys would not fit. So Mueller and Routh escorted Edwards back to the man's apartment located at 924 North 25th Street. The door to the apartment 213 was opened by Jeffrey Dahmer, a 31-year-old white male. The inside of the apartment was neat and clean, and Dahmer acknowledged that he was responsible for the handcuff and pointed the officers in the direction of the bedroom, which is where he thought the keys would be. He also said, I just lost my job and I want to drink some fucking beer. After looking around inside, one of the officers opened up the fridge and exclaimed, Oh my god, there's a goddamn head in here. He's one sick son of a bitch. 
Dahmer suddenly turned on them and fought as the other cop tried to cuff him, and after subduing Jeff, they took him in. Upon searching the apartment, the box of baking soda in the refrigerator hardly absorbed the odors of a decomposing severed head. The freezer had three more heads, stored neatly in plastic bags and tied with plastic twisties. There was a door that led to the bedroom closet and bath, which had been outfitted with a deadbolt lock. Anne E. Schwartz, the reporter who was first at the scene, described what she saw in her book, The Man Who Could Not Kill Enough. In the back of the closet was a metal stockpot that contained decomposed hands and a penis. On the shelf above the kettle were two skulls. Also in the closet were containers of ethyl alcohol, chloroform and formaldehyde, along with some glass jars holding male genitalia preserved in formaldehyde. Polaroid photos taken by Dahmer at various stages of his victim's deaths. One showed a man's head with the flesh still intact, lying in a sink. Another displayed a victim cut open from the neck to the groin, like a deer gutted after the kill. The cut so clean, you could see the pelvic bone clearly. Some of the photos were his victims before he murdered them, in various erotic and bondage poses. Jeffrey Dahmer was indicted on 17 murder charges, later reduced to 15. Jeffrey Dahmer was not charged in the attempted murder of Edwards. His trial began on January 30, 1992, with evidence overwhelmingly against him, Dahmer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The trial lasted two weeks. The court found Dahmer sane and guilty on 15 counts of murder and sentenced him to 15 life terms, totaling 957 years in prison, which was the maximum penalty available as Wisconsin abolished capital punishment in 1853. At his sentencing hearing, Jeffrey Dahmer expressed remorse for his actions and said that he wished for his own death. In May of that year, Dahmer was extradited to Ohio, where he entered a plea of guilty for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks. Dahmer served his time at the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin, where he ultimately declared himself a born-again Christian. Roy Ratcliffe, a local preacher from the Churches of Christ, met with Dahmer and agreed to baptize him. Dahmer was attacked twice in prison, the first time in July of 1994. An inmate attempted to slash Dahmer's throat with a razor blade while Dahmer was returning to his cell from a church service in the prison chapel. Dahmer escaped the incident with superficial wounds. While doing janitorial work in the prison gym, Dahmer and another inmate, Jesse Anderson, were severely beaten by fellow inmate Christopher Scarva with a broomstick handle on November 28, 1994. Dahmer died of severe head trauma while on his way to the hospital in an ambulance. Anderson died two days later from his wounds. Upon learning of his death, Jeffrey Dahmer's mother, Joyce Flint, responded angrily to the media. Now is everybody happy? Now that he is bludgeoned to death, is that good enough for everyone? The response of the families of Dahmer's victims was mixed. Although it appears most were pleased with his death, the district attorney who prosecuted Dahmer cautioned against turning Scarver into a folk hero, noting that Dahmer's death was still murder. The Oxford Apartments at 924th North 25th Street were demolished in 1992. The site is now a vacant lot. Plans to convert the site into a memorial garden failed to materialize. 
1994, Lionel Dahmer published a book, Father's Story, and donated a portion of the proceeds from his book to the victims' families. Most of the families showed support for Lionel Dahmer and his wife, Shari. He has retired from his career as an analytical chemist and resides with his wife in Medina County, Ohio. Lionel Dahmer is an advocate for creationism, and his wife was a member of the board of the Medina County, Ohio Horseman's Council. Both continue to carry the name Dahmer and say they love Jeffrey despite his crimes. Jeffrey's mother and Lionel Dahmer's first wife, Joyce, died of cancer in 2000. Jeffrey's younger brother, David, changed his last name and lives in anonymity. Jeffrey Dahmer's estate was awarded to the families of 11 of his victims, who had sued for damages. In 1996, Thomas Jacobson, a lawyer representing eight of the families, announced a planned auction of Dahmer's estate to raise up to $1 million, sparking a controversy. A civic group, Milwaukee Civic Pride, was quickly established in an effort to raise the funds to purchase and destroy Dahmer's possessions. The group pledged $407,225, including a $100,000 gift by Milwaukee real estate developer Joseph Zilber for purchase of Dahmer's estate. Five of the eight families represented by Jacobson agreed to the terms, and Dahmer's possessions were destroyed and buried in an undisclosed Illinois landfill. And thus, the story of Jeffrey Dahmer ends. 